Uh, this past week, I got the opportunity to take my son to Dutch Wonderland. Uh, and I know some of the rest of you were there because I either saw you there or saw pictures of you there this past week. Uh, I don't know who was more excited about that, him or me. But while we were there, we got uh, the opportunity to take him on his first roller coaster ride. Uh, which it turns out roller coasters are like 10 times more fun when you've got a laughing, screaming toddler sitting next to you. Uh, but it reminded me of, or had me thinking back to, the first roller coaster ride that, that I took that I can at least remember. Uh, it was in sixth grade, and so I'm sure that I was on roller coasters before then, but, but I don't really remember any of those, mainly because I was kind of terrified of roller coasters up to this point. Uh, I always looked at roller coasters and played out kind of the worst-case scenario in my mind, thinking like, well, if it has a loop, what, what happens if you get stuck upside down in that loop? Uh, or, or what happens if in the middle of this ride, your, your harness comes undone? Or, or like, what happens if the roller coaster jumps the tracks somehow? But, but probably my worst-case scenario that I play out the most, just because I thought maybe it's the most realistic of what would happen, is going up that first hill on the conveyor belt and getting stuck on that hill. Uh, I, I was terrified of heights. I kind of still am. Uh, and so the, the thought of getting stuck on that hill and having to possibly get out and walk down those narrow steps just left me horrified, not wanting to get on a roller coaster. But, but over and over again, people testified to me that roller coasters are both safe and fun. That the people who had ridden on roller coasters would give me the testimony saying, hey, we've never been on a roller coaster where something has gone wrong. Like, you should get on one. They're, they're fun. They're safe. They're okay. And, and so finally, it was at Hershey Park one summer with my older brother and my cousins, and, and they were trying to convince me again. And finally, I said, all right, I'll get on one. And so it, it was the Wildcat, a roller coaster that just closed this past summer, actually. And I, I looked at that thing. I'm like, man, this looks rickety. It shakes a lot. Like, I'm not sure about this. But they said, no, no, roller coasters are safe and they're fun. You should get on. So I get in line. And, and as I'm in line, I'm kind of playing out all the worst case scenarios again, debating, like, am I really going to get on this thing when it's my turn? And then I get up to the front of the line and, and hit that kind of no po point of no return where you sit down, they lock you in, and they hit that button, and there's no changing your mind. And so we we go out, we start to creep up the hill, and I'm playing out those scenarios again, and we're creeping up, we're creeping up, and we get almost to the top of the hill, and the roller coaster stops. No joke, it stops. And I'm thinking, I, like, I don't know if my brother paid them off, or if this is just a temporary malfunction, but I'm thinking, this, this is why I shouldn't have got on. What was I doing? Right? And, and it, we sat there for what felt like forever. It was probably only 10 seconds. And I'm thinking, we're, we're going to have to go backwards down this hill. It's gonna I'm going to have to get off and walk down these stairs. And then all of a sudden, the coaster lurched forward again. We, we reach the top of the hill, and, and we head down. And I experience 75 seconds of pure bliss, realizing, oh, the, the testimony of my brother and my cousins is true. Roller coasters are safe, even when they do get stuck. And they're lots of fun. What I did with roller coasters is what we all do in all sorts of areas of our lives. Asking, lo looking at something or uh, looking at some area and, and asking, can I trust this? Can I trust this? A and we look for evidence to ground our trust 
often looking to the testimony of other people, whether we realize it or not. And and this is the exact question we ask when it comes to Christianity and the claims about Jesus, who Jesus is and what he's done. We we ask whether we're not a Christian or even throughout our time as followers of Christ, can I trust Jesus? Like, can I really trust what the Bible says about him? Should I bank my life on this man and what scripture has said about him? In 1 John 5, we've seen, or we saw last week, that John's starting to focus on faith in Christ. That's kind of the angle that he's coming at things with. And in verses 6 through 12, we're going to see John giving us evidence or testimony to the truth of Jesus that might ground our faith more securely in him. So as a result, our hope might be found more fully in him. That's the the big idea that hopefully sticks from today, that a well-grounded faith is necessary for a well-founded hope. A well-grounded faith is necessary for a well-founded hope. And so let, let's pray together first and then read John's words in John chap, 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. Father, we come to you this morning uh, longing to hear from you, longing to have you speak to us, knowing that your voice is the one that we need to cut through all other voices. God, we come from lots of different weeks, lots of different circumstances, lots of different things happening in our lives, but our one need is the same. We need to hear from you. We need to know what we believe, know why that should give us hope, and so I I pray that you'd speak to us this morning through these words as we read them and talk about them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting in verse 6 of John chapter, 1 John chapter 5. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by the water and the blood. The Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. This is a bit of a confusing passage. I don't know if you feel that when we read through it. Like, especially verses six through nine, if they're just questions that immediately jump out, like, what is the water and the blood? What does it mean that the water and blood testify to Jesus? How, how does the spirit testify? What does it mean to say that it's God himself who testifies? What what is the testimony within us? Like there are probably just all sorts of questions if if we would look at this that start to jump out. And one of the things that 
that we need to remember whenever we come to Scripture, especially to maybe difficult passages, is that our first goal in some way should be to ask, what, what is the most plain or obvious thing that the author is getting at in this passage? You, you might think of if you dump out a thousand-piece puzzle onto a table, there are all sorts of pieces. You might think, well, where do I start? And, and any person who does puzzles, no. Where, where, do you, where do you start? You start with the outside pieces, the corner pieces, the ones that are most obvious, and then you work your way in from there to put that puzzle together. And that's a good practice for us as we seek to interpret Scripture. And so we would ask then, coming to this passage, okay, well, what is the most obvious thing that it seems like John is saying here. This is where Robert Yarbrough, someone who commentates on this passage, says, whereas verses 1 through 5 in chapter 5 laid stress on the experience of faith, chapter 5, 6 through 12 emphasize the object and content of faith. John is concerned to the empirical truth regarding Jesus Christ. John is concerned to affirm the empirical truth regarding Jesus Christ. Or this is how I'm going to put it this morning, that the Christian's faith is grounded in historical events. The Christian's faith is grounded in historical events. So John can say, this is he, referencing back to Jesus as the Son of God in verse 5, who came by the water and the blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. In saying, this is he who came, John is emphasizing Jesus really entered into this world. Like he really came into this world. This is a historical event. John's saying, this, this is not just some story I'm making up. This is not a fairy tale. This is not a myth. This is something that actually happened in history that I witnessed along with others. And we might think back to John's very first words in this book, if you remember them. First John chapter 1, verse 1, where John talks about Jesus and says, which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. See, our, our faith is based on historical events. And I hope we'll see why that matters, why that's so important for the Christian. Our faith is based on actual historical events that happened. And we, we might point out three things here. First, two that John says, and then one we find outside of John. First of all, Jesus' baptism, which I believe John is referring to when he talks about the water. You might ask, well, how in the world should Jesus' baptism ground our faith? Be, because at Jesus' baptism, God both visibly and audibly demonstrated that Jesus is his son. Think back to Jesus' baptism and what we have recorded about it in Matthew chapter 3. It says that after he came out of the water, behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Visual. And behold, a voice from heaven, audible, said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. 
and saying, remember Jesus' baptism. It was both a visible and audible demonstration that Jesus is the Son of God. And this was not an event that happened in a corner or a closet, but in front of a crowd, probably a very large crowd that had come out to see and hear John the Baptist and then witnessed Jesus being baptized and these events happening. It was testified to by a large crowd of eyewitnesses. And then second, we might think about Jesus' crucifixion on the cross, which I believe is what John's referring to as the blood. That's an event that John was there for. He was the only one of the 12 disciples who was there for it. All the rest scattered. But there was another large crowd there observing, watching this. And John's saying, Jesus really died. The, the one who was declared to be the son of God at his baptism really died. Like I saw it. I saw him bleed. I saw him take his last breath. He really did die. Now, now we'll see some more of the significance of that in a moment, why John points to that event. But for now, we should just recognize, again, this didn't happen in a corner or a closet. Like Jesus didn't die in a house. He died publicly as a spectacle before a large crowd with eyewitnesses who could testify to it. Okay, so there's Jesus' baptism, Jesus' death, and then we might jump outside of John and think about his resurrection. We could look at 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul speaks about the resurrection of Jesus and says that after Jesus was raised, he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the 12, including John. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. You know what Paul's saying? The resurrection is a historical event that hundreds of people, 500 people more witnessed. It did not happen in a corner or a closet. It happened in front of a crowd. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are all events that eyewitnesses can testify to and confirm at this time when New Testament letters are being written. Now let's think, why, why does that matter? Why is that important for us to recognize? Let, let's say this, this coming hunting season, if you're a hunter, that I pull you aside at some moment and I say, hey, did you, did you get a deer this year? Did you get a deer this year? And you looked at me and you said, oh yeah, Kyle, I did. I got a deer. I shot a 12-point buck. It was running full speed away from me at 300 yards across the mountain, and I took it down with one shot. I'm going to look at you, and I'm going to think, oh, you're one of those hunters. Like, no way. That did not happen. And, and if you respond, you say, yeah, it did, Kyle. You just have to believe me. I'm not going to believe you. <laughs> I'm not going to believe you. I, I, okay, sure, but it didn't happen. But if you respond to me, you say, hey, my brother was there. He was standing right next to me. He saw it all happen. My cousin was 20 yards away from me. Uh, he saw it all happen as well. My dad was in a tree stand observing the whole thing. He saw it all happen. You talk to any of those people as well. You, you still may be making it up, but all of a sudden what you're saying is, hey, this is not just my tale, my story that I'm making up. This is an event that other people can testify to. Go talk to them. See, Eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses lend credence to the fact that this is not this the tale of one lonely hunter, 
but an event that happened that other people have witnessed and can confirm, right? Christianity is not simply the tale of one person who says, you just have to believe me and recognize that's where Christianity is different than many other religions, right? In some way, we might think about Islam. I think in some way it boils down to Muhammad saying, you just have to believe me, I saw Gabriel. We might think about Mormonism. In some way it boils down to Jesus saying, you just have to believe me, I saw visions. Christianity is not one person saying, you just have to believe me. It's saying, hey, this happened, and other people witnessed to it, testified to it. These are actual historical events. Here's what Kathy Keller says about all this. I thought of this recently as I mused on the necessity of the historical verifiable fact as the foundation for the Christian faith. Of all belief systems, Christianity is the only one that insists its truths must be founded on the historical existence of a person named Jesus, and that farther he historically said and did the things claimed of him. Most importantly, if Jesus didn't die, really die, dead as a doornail die, and rise again in a physical body, one that walked, talked, ate, and resumed relationships with his friends, then as Paul told the Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So our faith is based on historical events. And we might also add to that, our salvation is tied to historical events. This is the second reason I would say John talks about the water and the blood. Because I think part of what he's doing is he's responding to false teachers who were going around at this time and saying to the church, yeah, sure, Jesus was baptized. But up till that point, he was just a mere man. And then when he was baptized, yeah, the Spirit of God descended on him, and he became kind of this like pseudo-man God, and he did some miracles. But then that Spirit left him before he was crucified, and he was just a mere man when he died on the cross. And John's saying, no, no, no. The same one who was declared to be the Son of God at his baptism, not became the Son of God, was declared to be the Son of God, was the Son of God who died on the cross. Because if the Son of God did not live, die, and raise back to life, then our confidence that our sins are forgiven, our belief that we've been adopted into God's family through Christ, our hope of eternal life is a sham. But if the Son of God really did live, die, and raise again, then we have the greatest confidence in Christ to say our sins really are forgiven. We really have been adopted as God's children, and we really can look forward to eternal life because it was God who took the initiative to reconcile himself to us through Christ. But we have to add to this then. Historical events alone can't create faith. Yes, our faith is based on, tied to historical events, but but historical events alone can't create faith. That's why John says the Spirit is the one who testifies Because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. In other words, we need the Holy Spirit to testify within us to confirm the truth of these events. And not only the truth of these events, but the saving nature of these events. 
Faith is more than just accepting certain historical facts. It's not less, but it's more. Accepting historical facts leaves you just simply saying, that's interesting. Like, that's interesting. That sounds like a good story. Faith says, I'm a sinner, and my only hope is Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. I've got no other hope outside of him. And the only one who can create that faith within us is the Holy Spirit. But, but notice how he does it in agreement with the water and the blood, the testimony of Christ's life, death, and resurrection that we have within the Bible. Here's how David Jackman puts that. He says, the Spirit of God still takes the Word of God and produces children of God. Think about what this means for us today. We are still called to be witnesses to the historical events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and to what Scripture says about those events. We're called to testify to the truth of those things but then to rely fully on the Holy Spirit to bring about faith through our testimony. Whether it's in evangelism, discipleship, or any other way of teaching and proclaiming God's word, we are witnesses, but we rely on the Holy Spirit to use our witness. You might might just think of it in this way. How, How does electricity get into your house and affect the house that you're living in. Well, it has to go through wires, right? Now, I know there's some wireless technology out there, but for the sake of this, it's got to go through wires. You, you have to put wires up, lay wires down, whatever it might be, to get to your house. Otherwise, electricity doesn't make it. But, but wires alone aren't enough, right? If I put some wires up without any source of electricity, they will do nothing. I need some source that's generating electricity that then goes through those wires, bringing electricity to my house to affect my house. Wires are necessary, but they are not enough. Our testimony to Jesus Christ, according to God's word, is necessary. People do not come to faith or grow in faith apart from it. But it's not enough without the Holy Spirit using it. And so we rely on him. We continue to testify, but we rely on him. And then the second thing, think about this aspect of it. Testifying to Jesus as the Son of God and what he's done is God's deepest passion. We see in verse 9, the one who testifies is God himself. God loves to testify to the truth of his son and what he's done to save people. Like it brings God joy to exalt his son, testify to him. That's his passion. And so when we proclaim the gospel, when we teach the Bible, when we disciple our kids, when we mentor younger believers, or any other way of proclaiming God's word, we we are joining in doing the very thing God is most passionate about. We have the God of the universe in those moments backing us up because we are doing what he is most passionate about, testifying to the truth of his son and what he's done so that sinners might come to faith in Christ. Like we never 
we never testify to Christ and what he's done alone. We do it and then rely on the power of God to use us. And I think that's freeing for us because it tells us here's our responsibility, but here's who we desperately need to use us as we are witnesses. Which then we might come to the second part of this passage and see this. The Christian's hope is grounded in a person. John says it in chapters or in verses 10 through 12. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. We might say, first of all, to that, God's testimony demands a response. God's testimony to Jesus demands a response. We can see that just in what's said in verse 10. That God has testified to his sons, to his son, through the events of history that are now recorded in his word. This is not just man's testimony, it's God's testimony, and it's sufficient. And he forces us to respond. Either we believe what he says about Jesus and accept it entirely and fully and so find life or we believe the God of the Bible is ultimately a liar and he's not telling the truth. But there's, there's no in-between. Either we believe it or we don't. God said, my testimony is sufficient. Either believe me or, or call me a liar, one of the two. You, you might picture yourself in a courtroom on a jury And in that courtroom, there's a man who's on trial for bank robbery. And you have the prosecution putting forward all the evidence it can muster to try to convince you that man is guilty. And you have the defense trying to put forward all the evidence it can muster to try to convince you that man is actually innocent. And at the end of two days, the trial ends. And ultimately, you have to decide who's telling the truth. One side isn't telling the truth, or at least isn't telling the whole truth. And by virtue of you deciding, you're saying one side has the truth, one side is lying, based off this testimony that we've received. God has testified to us that Jesus alone is the way to be saved. Jesus alone is the way to have a relationship with God. Jesus alone is the way to have eternal life. We do not get to create a Jesus of our own making. We do not get to create our own way of having a relationship with God. Either we accept the testimony God's given us to Christ in Scripture and say, that's true, and I'm going to bank my life on it. Or we say, no, that's false. And if we do, we have a God or a Jesus of our own imagination by virtue of saying God's testimony about him is not true. But, but we shouldn't miss it. In our response to Jesus, we're, we're not simply a jury def- deciding someone else's fate. Our response to Jesus ultimately decides our own eternal fate. That's what John is hitting at in this passage. God's gift of eternal life depends on Jesus. It's what we find in verses 11 through 12. David Jackman, again, says this. Verses 11 and 12 must stand as among the most magnificent in the whole of the New Testament. The the consequences of believing God's truth or denying it could hardly be more important or far-reaching. 
John is not merely concerned about academic disagreements over theological niceties. Eternal destinies are at stake. This is utterly incredible, what John's saying. That if you believe in Jesus, you trust in him, you have life both now and forever. And and I just want us to stop and, and focus on, dwell on that promise for a minute and what God is saying there. Like, he's not, is he saying, if you have the son and you're really good, then you have eternal life? No. If you have the son and you don't screw up and let God down too bad? No. If you have the son and you get your act together? No. If you have the son and you lead 10 other people to faith in Christ? No. If you have the son, you have eternal life, period. That's an absolutely incredible statement because it's saying eternal life is a free gift given by God. And the only requirement is that we would believe in Jesus and then have life. There's this uh, great deal at several Lancaster County mini golf places. I can't, I can't say that it's at all of them. I know of two of them. Uh, it's a deal where kids under five get in free. Kids under five get in free. But there's a requirement to that. They have to be with an adult who is paying for their own way. So if a toddler shows up to one of those mini golf courses by himself or herself and tries to get in for free, it won't work. She'll have to pay. But if she's with an adult, by virtue of being with that adult, she gets in for free. What what the adult gains by paying for 18 holes of mini golf, the toddler gets for free by virtue of having the adult with him or her. And just imagine with me for a moment, if they got up to the cash register and the toddler looked up at the adult and said, I want to pay my own way today. The adult would respond to that toddler and say, well, no, 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 you get in free. Because I pay, you get to have 18 holes of mini golf for free. And if the toddler continued to insist on paying his or her own way, it would ultimately show that he or she doesn't want to depend on the adult, wants to be self-sufficient in some way. As long as we're trying to gain eternal life in some way other than Jesus, or trying to add to what he's done, it shows we don't have eternal life because we're, we're not willing to depend fully on Jesus. We think we've got to do something. We've got to add to it. But if we look at Jesus today and say and confess, you are my only hope. Like my only hope for life both now and forever is you, Jesus. My only hope is in you and what you've done. Then we have eternal life. We have a relationship with God now, and we get to enjoy life with him in a perfect world forever. But that's the hope we then have. And we should see this. The certainty certainty of our hope depends on Jesus. Like because Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended and has all authority in heaven and on earth, everything is going how he wants it to, even when it doesn't make sense to us. Because Jesus was raised from the dead He's with us and will give us strength to face whatever comes our way. And he will work everything out in the end. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, so too, if our faith is in him, when we die, we rise up to live with him forever. 
Tim Keller says about this, there is no greater hope possible than to believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. If you grasp this great fact of history, then even if you find things going dark, this hope becomes a light for you when all other lights go out. Like the I want us to get this. The the Christian hope that no matter how dark things get, everything will work out is rooted in what Christ has done in history. Everything went dark at the cross. And then he rose up three days later showing that everything worked out according to God's plan. The, The Christian hope that death is not the end of the story, but that the grave has to give way for us is rooted in the fact that the grave gave way for Jesus to everlasting joy. And so the grave has to give way for you, if your faith is in Christ, to everlasting joy. Like our our hope is rooted in what Christ has already done in history, already accomplished. I I was listening to the song this week by Ellie Holcomb, and, and there's some lyrics from that song that have just been turning over in my mind this week. She says this in part of the song, She says, got a lot of bad days still coming our way, but it's sweet ever after. Wind and waves breaking over our walls, but the ship, it don't shatter. The the Christian hope is not unrealistic. Like it looks out and it says, we've got a lot of bad days and more coming our way. That's part of living in a world broken by sin and cursed. It's not unrealistic. It doesn't think that life's going to go exactly how we want. But it's sweet ever after because we're going to live with Christ forever. We've got wind and waves that are going to break over the walls, but the ship doesn't shatter because Jesus is the ship who sees us safely through this life into everlasting joy with him. The the, the unbeliever, or maybe even Christians, might look at that and might think, well, That's just wishful thinking that gets you through this life. To which we should say in response, you're absolutely right it gets me through this life. Like what what hope gets you through this life? But to which we should also say, it is not wishful thinking. It's the most certain thing possible because it's grounded in what Jesus has already done in history, his life, death, and resurrection. God makes some absolutely incredible promises in his word, just like this one. If you have the son, you have eternal life. And they are grounded in the fact that Jesus really did live, die, and come back to life. And so we can trust in all of God's promises and find joy in what he promises to us. That's just the the last thing I want to hit on this morning, that we should find joy in what God promises to us. We should find joy in his promises to you, to me. God desires us, I think, to have joy in his promises. God desires us to be confident that he really will fulfill every last promise to us. As we read through scripture, we can grab onto God's promises and rejoice in them, knowing that because of Jesus, every last promise God makes comes true. As we were getting ready to go to Dutch Wonderland this past week, we went on Tuesday. I started building that up with my son the previous Friday. 
right? So Friday rolls around, I bought the tickets to Dutch Wonderland, and I come home and I say to Oliver, hey, hey, Oliver, guess what we're going to do next Tuesday? It's a blank face, like, we're going to go to Dutch Wonderland. His face lights up, he's like, Dutch Wonderland, except his, his W kind of comes out as a U right, right now, so it's Dutch Underland, yes! Saturday rolls around. Hey, hey, Oliver, tomorrow's Sunday, the next day's Monday, and then it's Tuesday. Do you know what Tuesday is? Dutch Underland, yes! And then Sunday rolls around. Hey, Oliver, today's Sunday. Tomorrow's Monday. We're three days away. You know what's coming? Dutch Underland, right? He starts to talk about all the rides he's going to go on, how much he can't wait. Monday rolls around. Hey, Oliver, tomorrow's Tuesday. You know what that means? Dutch Underland, it's a day away. Here's what I found as a father. It made me happy to see my son trusting in my promises. We're going to Dutch Wonderland. And not only trusting in them, but finding joy in them, that they made him happy. And here's what I, here's what I realized, that, that if he wouldn't have believed my promises, like if I would have said, we're going to Dutch Wonderland, he would have said, no, Daddy, I don't believe you. I would have been offended, like, why don't you believe me? Or if he wouldn't have found, if it would have just kind of been indifferent, like, we're going to Dutch Wonderland. I, I don't care. Like, it wouldn't hurt. But it brought me joy to find him not only trusting in my promises, but rejoicing in them and saying, yeah, that's going to happen, and I can't wait. How much more is that true of God, who's our perfect father? That he wants us not only to trust in, but also rejoice in his promises. And maybe this morning, you're someone who's here who has never trusted in God's promises in Christ. Never put your faith in Christ. You don't know the hope that God is talking about in this passage. But I, I want to urge you, God is calling you today, repent, trust, and believe in God's promises. And find secure, certain hope because of what Christ has done. And I want to urge you, Man, come up and talk to someone after the service who's up here to pray for you. Find a pastor. Find someone else. Tell them, man, I want the hope Christ offers me. They might pray with you, lead you to put your trust in Christ. And, and for those who are here, you are trusting in Christ. You have been for years. Like God wants you to rely on his promises, to rejoice in his promises. One of the ways that we fight for joy as Christians is we grab onto God's promises and we say, this is true. So I'm going to rejoice because this is true no matter what else is happening in my life. And, and we might do that even with John's promise in this passage. I have the son, therefore I have eternal life. And though my life is not going how I want right now, I'm going to find joy in that truth. Or we might do it with any other of God's promises we come across in scripture. We can bank on God's promises. We can rejoice in God's promises. Because of Jesus, they all really do come true in the end. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are a promise-making and promise-keeping God, that you've demonstrated that in what Jesus has done in history, and that as we look back and see him living and dying and being raised for us, we can look ahead and know that everything you've promised to us comes true. God, would you carry us by your promises? Would you help us to rest in them and to rejoice in them, even in the midst of whatever we face in this life? I pray this in Jesus' name.